0: Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. And we like to do more than scratch the surface on Deep Breath In, but today we're going to keep things superficial as we're talking about skin. Teledermatology is often presented as a leading example of how healthcare is adapting to the digital age. But does the reality, often a blurry photo of an unknown part of the body sent through your online consultation platform, Live up to the hype. And our teledermatology clinic is the solution to the ever-growing waiting list to see a dermatologist. I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And attached to the podcast today we have Jenny. Hi Jenny!
1: Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ.
0: Okay, and open the other attachment. That's uh, Navjoy. Hi.
2: <laughs> Hi. I feel like the um, paperclip from like, Microsoft Word. <laughs> made me feel like- I'm like that one who offers to try and help but is actually really annoying and I, I hope that's not how I come across but anyway I'm uh, Navshot Larder I am a locum GP and I'm the head of education at the BMJ.
0: Great I was going to say that like, you've been scanned for viruses but uh, I'm not sure if you've d- you're doing lateral flow tests are you? Gosh
2: there's just so many like mixing of metaphors going on here yeah <laughs> well <laughs>
0: yes. It took me hours to come up with that. So, okay. It was good.
2: It was good. (laughs) I I enjoyed hearing the kind of glee in your voice during your introduction. Like you you sounded quite pleased with yourself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is, um, (laughs) that's true.
2: (laughs) It was good. It was warranted.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm. Well, shall we move on to our, uh, theme of the episode then, which is uh, yeah about t- teledermatology and skin problems in this sort of post-COVID world. Um, uh, and I guess the reason we we thought this might be a good one to to cover is because for the last year, so not seeing people in person does make it quite challenging to diagnose skin conditions as you're not actually able to see their skin. Uh, and and also in the UK at least where we we've, we've brought in this um sort of online platforms where you can sort of send in your photo or problem and have an online consultation um and uh yeah it's not as straightforward as I guess the 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 teledermatology enthusiasts I think would 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 have you believe um have you sort of um, done much of this i review
2: yeah i've done a bit and i completely agree with you it's um it throws up all sorts of challenges that are different to when you're seeing someone in person, you're kind of removed of context and you realise actually how important a good history is as part of, you know, and Mm -hmm. actually sometimes before you, you know, that kind of shapes so much of how you pass something. So yeah, I've found it quite challenging as a as a new parent um
1: with children's diaper rashes we would kind of exchange photos of diaper rash on our new parents WhatsApp group and just how you really it's very difficult i think it's very difficult to tell what something is just from a photo um and clearly that's without specialist training in dermatology um but i um I think it's really challenging, you know. Um, sometimes it's challenging in real life, um, and you know, you're all o- you always have this fear that even though you know topical steroids do help a lot of very common dermatologic conditions, they can also make any infectious cause mm. worse. And so, no, it's, yeah, be very reluctant to just throw a cream on that.
0: Yeah, uh, and then of course, I, I think the, the thing that this. Sort of online stuff that brings in is then you not only got the the difficulty of diagnosing what what this rash or lesion is, but actually the added complication of the the quality of the photo and and the, I guess the distortion of a, what the camera lens does to to that skin lesion. And um, so that's the, the sort of first thing I thought we we could take a look at because that's not something we that gets much attention, does it? It's all about you know is it scaly or you know red or itchy you know it's but actually. Um, it's the photo I thought would be interesting to, to, to have a look at.
2: Yeah, I think that would be really great because that's one of the things I really struggle with is two dimensions, just how flat it is. And I think that, you know, it's it's really hard without depth and without, you know, knowing yeah, just being able to see it in person. So, if there is a way that a photo can be optimised in some way, then I'd really like to hear about it.
0: Well, uh, mm-hmm. so I reached out to to somebody who I thought would be able to to give us some help. Um, that's the chair of the medical group of the Royal Photographic Society. Um, so I thought it might be interesting to go a little bit more to someone who's also just a someone who who, who loves photography uh, as well as uh, in a in a medical context. Uh, and so I spoke to the chair of that group, whose uh, name is Afsal Ansari, uh, and it was really, really lovely talking to him. He's been taking photos for publications since the 1950s uh, when he had yeah. his first first images published um, of skin manifestations of tropical diseases. So uh, he's really, yeah, an incredible kind of history of... Um, of taking taking medical photos, so shall we? Uh, and, and the focus of my conversation with him was uh, actually as a GP. It's usually the, at the moment the patients who are taking the pictures. So, you know, what can we say to patients? Just some simple tips to to help them take a good photo.
3: My, my name is Abduln sorry. And I am the chair of the medical group in the RPS, which stands for Royal Photographic Society. The application of photography to medicine, Tom, is as old as the photography itself. Mm. And the first photograph, as you know, was taken in 1826. I didn't know that. And and soon after that, uh, photography was being applied to medicine. Mm. Photography is used for patient care, diagnosis, research, teaching, communication, and the list goes on. It is not the photograph. It's what do you do with it, and does it achieve the objectives for which it was taken? So going back briefly to your needs, you have to be very specific. What are the objectives in mind? For the GPS, what are they trying to achieve by telling their patients to take their own pictures? What are they expecting? What are, what's the criteria? What are the objectives?
0: Let's talk then about um, how to take a good photograph, or how to, or actually more more how to advise somebody else to take a good photograph. And I, I want to look at that in particular because. In the UK as a GP, I'm, I'm not really seeing very many patients at the moment, it's mostly on the phone, actually a lot just, just emailing or using online uh, platforms to contact us. So, um, yeah, could, could you maybe talk through as if you were a me as a GP, what you would say to somebody about how to take a good photo for the purpose of-
3: Well, how good a picture does a GP need? The lighting condition has got to be right. The position of the camera to the lesion has got to be right. And then it's a question of uh, sharp focus, because a picture which is blurred or out of focus is is no good. And that can happen for various reasons. One of the reasons would be when the camera is too close, the smartphones are not designed for Mm close-up. There are close-up lenses available for smartphones but I don't think your patients would, would have that kind of facility or kind of closer plans which they can attach yeah. on. So, without the closer plans, they can still take a reasonably good picture, provided they can go as close as the camera can focus. And the camera is placed place to place, when I mean place, uh, sorry, plane to plane. What I mean by that, the camera is not at an angle compared to the lesion. The lesion must be parallel to the camera. That would avoid distortion. And the best way to take picture would not be to fire the flash on the camera unless one has to really do it and get some kind of an image. Uh, In my experience, the best thing is to go as close to the window light as possible. Window light is, is good light, is color corrected for color temperature. It's a grazing light. And place the camera parallel to the lesion, and focus on it and take a picture. Of course, you would expect your patient to take several pictures, hoping some of them would be usable ones.
0: Thank you. Yeah, that's very very helpful. It's 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 useful just to hear those things very kind of simply laid out. You know, it's the the lighting the. Um, you know, the distance um, away, and
3: um, I've forgotten if one that was. It. Uh, See, one other thing, Tom, yeah. is that there are uh, apps built within the smartphones whereby you can edit the picture. Mm. Uh, when you edit the picture, you can increase the contrast, decrease the contrast, do the cropping, you know, all that kind of thing. That is a dangerous thing to do unless one knows what is what he or she is doing, because you can aggravate and and show the lesion to be much more severe than it, than it is, and that's not not the true representation.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I must admit, lots of times I've been quite concerned about something that I've seen on a picture, and then I bring the patient in, and it's like, oh, is, it, is that it? Yeah, it's very 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 different looking in, in real life to what can come across on a photo
3: absolutely absolutely mm-hmm. uh we we often get asked "Does the camera lie of course camera lies camera lies all the time
0: so there you go yeah the camera lies i like that and i think <laughs> I, I guess there's a lot behind that isn't there but with, with our with what we're doing and and like you're saying um different light the lesion will look very different you don't get the depth you know you only get a two-dimensional I- image um, uh, and other things too
2: um, mm. yeah that was really interesting lighting composition and focus I'm going to remember that that's a good little yeah just basic
0: stuff isn't it I was thinking it'd be nice to do um, for our website you know you know instructions just really simple That like here's four things to, to, to bear in mind if you're going to yeah. send us a picture like don't use a flash yeah uh, do it next to um, the window or outside, I guess. Um, don't be too close. A uh, couple of things I've come across is it can be you sort of have to, uh, two different angles if you want to get a sense of the yeah. depth. Have you seen that? Um, and also have one, I think that might come up later, a bit more zoomed out so you can see exactly where it is.
2: Sometimes you need a sense of the scale, don't you? And what I have done in the past is try and find a nearby object like a penny or something just to put for comparison next to it just so you can I, I don't know if that's the right thing to do but um you know having some appreciation of the size as well uh
0: but I thought also the the challenge to us about you know what are you actually taking the photo for is 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 really interesting um uh and I guess one thing I've learned through this sort of thinking about this episode is um Yeah, that initial stage is often... Actually, a blurry blurry photo can be okay if it's just about a bit of information gathering alongside a history. And often you don't really need to Mm. see a picture to make a diagnosis of a skin problem like, you know, eczema, I suppose. Um, Yeah, or or if it's actually for diagnosis, then probably a photo taken at home isn't ever going to be diagnostic. It's um, what the the dermoscopy is for. So I think it's... it's, um, Mm. Good reminder to think, well, what am I actually asking this patient to take it for?
2: Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. Spot on. <laughs>
0: let's uh, let's stay focused. Uh... Uh,
2: <laughs> sorry, it's like, fantastic times.
0: <laughs> but I guess what we want to see as GPs or what might be OK for us isn't quite the same as what, what a dermatologist might want to see in a photo.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, So I actually spoke to Lucy Thomas. She is a consultant dermatologist and actually part of the winning team of this year's BMJ awards for her Mm. teledermatology service that uniquely looks at diagnosing skin cancers um, in that way. And Mm. um, we'll hear a bit more from her later, but she was giving me some advice on what actual dermatologists want to see in a photo because as you say tom um we might have different reasons why we ask patients to send us a photo but for their specific purposes of taking forward a referral um she has Mm. some guidance so let's take a listen
4: The biggest issue really when it comes to receiving images is that they're out of focus or the mm-hmm. um, area of concern is not in the image. So it really kind of goes back to basics um, of, around the image capture. So um, I really encourage GPs to um, look at the photographs that you're taking and if it doesn't look good to you and you can't make it out, then we're not going to be able to understand it or, or process it either. Mm-hmm. So. Really take that time to try and get some good quality images. Um, It's really good to ensure that you've got really good lighting because that allows us to um, zoom into areas. Um, I'd also say, so if you're taking a photograph of a skin lesion, make sure that uh, there's a localising photograph and then a close-up photograph about 20 centimetres away. Don't try and get too close because you'll just lose focus. And then obviously, if you do have a dermatoscope, that's incredibly helpful if you can take a picture with a dermatoscope of a skin lesion. Also, mm-hmm. make sure that you use arrows or markers or numbers mm-hmm. to um, identify different lesions. Or you can even put your finger in the shot to point to the point to the lesion of concern um, so that we know exactly what it is that you're um, referring to. And top tips for when you're uh, photographing rashes are to, again, make sure you've got some global images. Along with some close-ups, and try to photograph the edge of the rash rather than the central area, because that will yield the most information. I'd say that most of the time, if we can get a good quality image, then we can narrow it down to quite a, a short differential. Um, obviously, we do see some weird and wonderful rashes that come through the doors, and but then they're the patients that you know need to come in and be seen and have a more thorough workup. Uh, but the photographs generally can be incredibly helpful.
0: Uh, yeah, no, so that was that was good too. So reiterating some some of what um, Afsal said, but the edge of the lesion—I don't think I'd have, that would have occurred to me. Um, I'm not sure people want to see my horrible fingers in the picture, so I might use a pen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I mean, I think there's a lot there that you know I know we've kind of had to sort of differentiated it by what we might tell a patient and what um we might do when we're sending a photo to a dermatologist but I, I guess that's all it's all the same isn't it we it's mm. all good advice that we can share for GPS and for patients about mm. taking pictures of um lesions
1: yeah, it's interesting because I don't think I have really conceptualized myself as. A photographer. When I'm seeing somebody, right? Like more often than not, you get a picture from somebody, whether it's a family member or a patient or whatever. Um, hey, what do you think this is? Um, and I, and I'm trying to think about the times when I've taken a picture of a person with a specific purpose of referral. Um, so that's interesting. I mean. Um, just wanted to make sure you do that correctly when you do try mm. to do that, but Lucy was also telling me about um how a lot of places now have set up photography suites like medical photography suites where people can go specifically for the purpose of getting a good picture taken to refer to um, a dermatology service, which I thought was fascinating
0: mm. yeah, I've heard of these too. I think it was in an, another category of the bmj awards i think there are quite a few entries on this because it's quite a mm-hmm. kind of well, the hot topic's the right word but uh yeah where you you give your patient an appointment to go to to see the medical photographer They don't see a dermatologist uh but then they get a letter back from the dermatologist saying you yeah, know this is what your skin problem is and it's it's good i, I like it. i think it's uh it can be really helpful but of course the other thing that's really handy is to to be able to send dermatologists a photo to get some further advice because so much so much we don't know about skin problems but referral waits are so long it's can be really hard. Yeah,
1: in fact Lucy was telling me about this service advice and guidance and actually also got lots of advice from her teledermatology colleagues at the British Association of Dermatologists and They had other tips to pass on. So um, why don't we go back to the rest of my interview with Lucy Thomas? And that's coming up after this from our sponsor.
5: When you're a GP, you're not just 9 to 5. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice including 24 7 in an emergency we don't just cover patient claims we're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries coroner inquests criminal investigations and more online we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news risks and legislation we also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being with a free counselling service and e-care app. We're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And now back to my interview with
1: Lucy Thomas.
4: Well, quite a few services around the country are actually encouraging all the referrals to come in through advice and guidance. Now, we're not actually necessarily saying that, that that's what all dermatology departments are going to want because they may not be set up to do that. <laughs> but the advantage is that if you use the advice and guidance pathway, even if the um, consultant decides to upgrade that referral to um, a formal appointment, it means that they can still come back with some advice um, for managing that patient in the interim. So it allows that two-way conversation. And with, um, particularly with routine uh, referrals at the moment where there's gonna be really long waits for patients to be seen in secondary care, that can be vital in terms of helping mm. patients start to get on the right path. It also means that the, the dermatologist can actually fast track some patients through to specific investigations where there may not be quite such a long wait. So if they need mm-hmm. patch testing or if they need phototherapy or surgery, that they can be fast tracked straight through to that and have that done before they then come in for their formal um, review appointment. So those all of that can't be done if you just go ahead and make a straightforward referral. So it's a, it's a really good um, pathway to establish. Mm-hmm. And I know that many people that do set it up and engage with it fully um, are really, really happy with the uh, service that they're receiving from their local departments.
1: Yeah. I wonder if you can comment on the challenges for patients. Um, are there either conditions or patient concerns we, or even kind of patient population groups where um, going through a teledermatology clinic has been difficult or where you would even caution a GP about using the service?
4: Um, so I think from, a, from our skin cancer teledermatology service, um, we actually and did uh, s- some research to find out what patients thought about the service. And so from our patient um, survey, we found that generally uh, teledermatology services are more appealing to patients who consider their um, health status to be good, um, mm-hmm. rather than those who maybe have multiple comorbidities. And I guess that makes sense, um, given possibly the complexity that may be involved. Uh, but overall, 80% um, of our, the patients surveyed would recommend our service to friends and family. So ultimately, I think um, that's pretty reassuring.
1: And theres is there any kind of um, dermatologic or skin condition where you would caution GPs against using this servicing? Maybe this isn't actually appropriate.
4: Yeah, so um, I think... The first thing that springs to mind is any red flag conditions. So mm-hmm. if, you're thinking, um, if you're thinking that you've got a patient where there's blistering, there's mucosal involvement, there's any kind of systemic upsets, there's more than 90% of their body surface area involved, then please pick up the phone and speak to your local department or send the patient straight to A&E. Don't rely on getting a response um, within you know, 24, 48 hours. This is not an appro- It's not an appropriate um, service for emergencies. Um, the second thing is, I would say, if you strongly suspect a skin cancer, then you should still use your two-week wait pathway to refer the patient in, because there are additional safeguards in place to ensure that those patients are managed and tracked promptly.
1: I saw recently on Twitter a question posed by an emergency pediatrician, which was about the last time a doctor saw somebody with a serious condition whose only presenting symptom was a rash and no other problems. And kind of med Twitter's response was, this almost never happens. And so I wonder if you can comment on that particular um, clinical scenario where someone has a rash is like, their only symptom is otherwise well appearing, how quickly do we need to jump on that as GPs and is that something we should be submitting to teledermatology?
4: No, so I think um, when it comes to rashes where there's no systemic upset and none of the red flags, then I would definitely um, advise against sending that straight in. Um, obviously because it's visible and it's there in front of you and the patient can see it, it can be very concerning. But you really should be thinking about a trial of treatment and then a lapse of time. Very often skin rashes do resolve. We see lots of viral rashes and various things that come up. Um, And so that time and whether the treatment's effective is, is really important. And obviously if it hasn't responded to treatment or if it evolves then re-review the patient and then consider sending them in or upgrading um, your approach. Mm -hmm. And
1: when you have diagnosed a um, skin condition over teledermatology, is it your standard practice to see a follow-up photo and kind of make sure that there is Um, Good improvement. I'm just thinking about um, some of the more superficial skin cancers, maybe that go through um, an initial procedure. Um, How important is it to kind of see a follow up image, um, or do you kind of trust the patient to say that things have improved?
4: Um, So, I guess it it depends on what you're suspecting in the first place. So, um, Mm -hmm. clearly, if Um, if there's a pigmented lesion that you think may have changed, but you don't think um, warrants surgery that's not worrying enough, then, of course, it's very useful to have a repeat photograph at three months to ensure that there's been no interim change. And that that can be a really helpful um, way of having a sort of follow-up service that's also teledermatology. Um, When it comes to um, things like um, pre-cancers, the great thing about... um, Uh, having a teledermatology service is that um, you've got a baseline photo there. You can then um, advise on appropriate treatment, which sometimes I know some GPs feel nervous about using, um, things like some of the stronger topical treatments, but you can institute that. And then you can either bring the patient back for a face-to-face appointment, um, you know, in a few months' time when you would expect it to have resolved, or you can send them back to the GP at that point for their review with the GP, who will also have that baseline photograph. But -hmm. I think what's really important is when you're communicating with the patient is that they need to be empowered to understand um, when they need to seek further help. So obviously if something is not responding to treatment or it's changing, um, then they need to go back to their GP and the GP needs to question that diagnosis Um, and uh, potentially refer that patient back in. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a a really important point about um, teledermatology, is it's a one-time diagnosis, it's not a forever diagnosis. Mm. That
1: that seems so important to me as well. And I hadn't considered that angle of kind of having um, a timeline of photos that accumulate in a patient's file Um, because so often, especially in paper charting, you just kind of try to draw a picture of what a lesion looks like, or you think you remember in your head how big something is, but actually having photographic evidence that accumulates over time seems like a really useful tool and benefit of using teledermatology more widely
4: disease trajectory is incredibly important um, for us as dermatologists, and it's actually something that's very often not included in the clinical history that we receive. And so um, there's actually certain pieces of information that if included in a referral can be incredibly helpful to us. So, you know, thinking about um, when uh, precise time scales, duration, evolution, and whether there's been any recent change they're all extremely important as is a provisional or differential diagnosis Mm. um, from the GP. What the GP thinks is incredibly important. It's really helpful and it doesn't matter if they get it wrong, but what they're thinking there can be really helpful when you're sat looking at a screen and reading through the referral information. Mm. And I, I know that sort of writing referral letters can be incredibly time consuming. And so I think and a, a, an important point to link into this would be to think about developing some smart referral forms, uh, because mm. that can be a way of making sure that you're capturing all the pertinent information that your dermatologists would love to see. Um, and but whilst also then extrapolating and sort of auto populating parts of the referral mm. from the GP medical record, I know from my colleagues that a real bugbear is sort of copying and pasting the GP consultation note, which generally, sadly, is often um, not hugely helpful, um, whereas few focused questions can be incredibly beneficial when um, you're sitting there at a computer screen and, and uh, reviewing images and information.
1: Um, I can very much understand how a copy of our note would not be helpful. Um, And I'm really glad you said that it's okay to be wrong. (laughs) Um, You know, it sounds like as long as there's a good photo and kind of relevant and pertinent information from an initial GP that teledermatologists really have a lot to work with. Um, But I wonder if there are any things in particular, any diagnoses that you worry about missing or things in particular that you would caution people against when doing uh, teledermatology.
4: I suppose um, we all worry about missing skin cancers um, and the weird and the wonderful things which present in atypical ways or a very you know very rare. Um, and with a teledermatology service, it's not about taking risks; it's about um, being able to. Um, promptly manage um, patients that you feel confident in a diagnosis and directing them to the most appropriate care, be it back with their GP, with a trial of treatment or um, with a review in hospital. So it's not about taking unnecessary risks, but there does need to be that element of education both for the GP and the patient to understand um, that conditions can change and they need to seek further advice if the condition is changing or not responding to treatment. And also, there is that important element of consent when you're um, signing the patient up for their teledermatology consultation. You know, this is not the gold standard. A gold standard is a face-to-face appointment and a teledermatology service may not be as effective as uh, that face-to-face appointment. But um, obviously, given the pressures that everybody's under, we need to make the best use of the resources that we have available. And so it's about empowering patients, educating them, and allowing them to be able to access services promptly as and when they have concerns. I take your point about that.
1: And I wonder what that means for thinking about primary care after COVID-19, allowing ourselves to imagine that, you know, should it go back to kind of business as usual, everyone sees a face-to-face dermatologist when we need to do a referral, or what will be, in your opinion, the kind of role for teledermatology going forward?
4: I think even prior to COVID, the number of um, dermatology referrals were increasing, and you know, given the sheer burden of skin disease, there's over 2000 different um, skin diseases that have been um, recognized. And each year over 50% of the population um, can have a skin disease. And they account for about 15 to 20% of a GP's workload. So it's a huge volume of work and the, with the number of dermatologists available, um, you're just not gonna be able to keep up with that demand at present. And I think another major issue is the lack of dermatology training available. So um, on the undergraduate curriculum, it's just a few days. There's a very few dermatology junior doctor jobs and there aren't very many training rotations as part of the GP training schemes. So it's really difficult for GPs to gain knowledge and experience compared to some of the other specialties like ENT and OBS and Gynae. And for that reason, I think that teledermatology is definitely here to stay. Um, and I hope that it is, because I think it's a much more efficient use of all of our time and of our precious resources.
0: Uh, so it looks like we, we can't just copy and paste our consultation notes anymore, which is, which is a pity.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why I think I... I agonise over dermatology referral letters and I think I spend a lot of time trying to describe the lesion (laughs) in words. And actually what I'm learning is I should just be taking a good photo, attaching that and then describing the disease trajectory and all these other important details that aren't sort of like me thinking like, is this... Macula papula of like, you oh, yeah. know, trying to think of all those terms that we learned, like well circumscribed. So um yeah. In- I think, duration I,
0: think I mean have you ever even Yeah like that's really important to dermatologists, isn't it? But I'm not sure i don't yeah. know, the GP say that word
2: yeah yeah all these like I, I remember actually in my gp training like we had a vts session that was from a dermatologist saying this is how you describe a lesion and i think we have and i think that's really stayed with me like that's that was quite formative because now i feel like oh well if i don't use you know fancy sounding terms to describe these things then my referral will be seen as crap mm. so um, but I, I think we've moved on from that now yeah. we've got smart it's like phones, I, I still
0: so. i still see the history as socrates you know, site onset character radiation. Yes. You'll fall yeah, back
2: on. yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But I think that point was really well made about the trajectory, and I think we mm. know that, don't we? Because often mm. we'll have man- we might have managed a lesion up to a point where we are now referring it, and even within that, there's a trajectory that we'll be describing. But yeah, it was a good good reminder. Yeah, uh, I thought
1: so too. I actually once had a. A personal, um, a personal situation with one of my kids where they had a rash, and I was putting this cream on it after seeing a dermatologist and thought it was getting better and thought it was getting better until finally um, someone was like, that is not getting better. And I looked back at it at an early photo that I had actually taken of it. Um, and, re- and it was only by looking back at the photo that I'd somehow thought to take that I actually realized it mm. was not getting better. Yeah. Um, so yeah,
2: that that really hit home for me as well. Yeah. I wonder what the role of photos would be in things like sizes of lesions as well. Like sometimes mm. we, you know, that's such a key question isn't it? is it be- getting bigger and over how long? And uh, it's so hard in that initial consultation to get a good sense of that, mm. but an early photo. But yeah, then there's a the whole thing about how do you accurately size it and all of that
0: yeah um another thing i guess it's worth going back to when we're just thinking about the the photograph itself is you know photographing different skin tones or skin colors and i think she touched on that a bit a little bit there didn't she
2: yeah i mean that's such an important point as well and i think it links to the point she was making about sort of training like there's if you consider that the training for GPs is kind of, you know, you learn it often as you're going along on the job. Um, and, uh, but actually the kind of taught training that we have and the, you know, textbooks and lectures and stuff. So often the, the reference point is white skin and that's, that's kind of what we're using as our baseline. And it's so much harder in practice when, you know, you're seeing the variety of skin tones that are out there in your patient population. To apply that, I think that's a mm. real challenge. And then, you know, we've just been talking about photographing as well. Like, that, I think w- that, you know, there would be considerations mm. for photographing different skin tones as well.
1: Yeah, because isn't it true that some cameras or even video conferencing apps like Zoom or whatever other platform you might be using to quote unquote see a patient, like, I've heard that a lot of them are kind of um, baseline set. For white skin, um, mm. just another example of like how racism it complicates things because when when our assumption or baseline is that you know white skin is the is what we will be looking at, then manufacturers put these settings on and and it can make it really difficult to get a clear picture of of what's going on for a different um,
2: skin tone. Mm. I know. And just thinking from our, uh, you know, we all work on the education section of Mm. the BMJ. I think that's one thing we've all become very uh, sort of cognizant of in the past. I mean, you know, in recent years that, you know, when we're publishing an article about dermatology or related to the skin, how often are we finding pictures um, Mm. that represent the sort of full range of uh, skin that um, our readers will see and that we see? Um, and it's hard you know when we look at stock photo libraries or you know when we ask authors as well you know to go to their institutions image banks or you know their own uh, libraries that they're they're just not there I mean I think there is a growing consciousness around this um, Hmm. but I think there's still a way to go.
0: Yeah okay well I think we need to to wrap things up Uh, I need to I feel like I want to go out and take some photos, um, po- possibly not of skin, yeah. but, but maybe of nice things.
2: <laughs> I'm going to go and photograph my husband's moles, I think. <laughs> <laughs> do some mole, mole
1: scamming. Okay, mole mapping.
0: <laughs> husband. Yeah. Good yeah.
2: Well, so
1: I'm going to bed now, but tomorrow I'm going to really think about what I can do to get better pictures with lighting, with focus and composition.
0: So uh, well, yeah. Well, thank you, Jenny. Good, uh, good to see you. See you next time.
1: Thank you. See you later.
0: And thanks have See you next time.
2: Thanks, everyone. See you next time.
0: Uh, and thank you to our guests today, uh, Afsal and to Lucy. And we'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks with another episode. Uh, please, if you have enjoying, or if you're enjoying listening to, to Deep Breath In, do go to your podcast app and subscribe. Uh, rate us, send a nice review, and tell your colleagues uh, too. So we'll see you next time. Bye for now.